Welcome, Foul Tarnished. We are here to put those foolish ambitions to rest. You're listening to Elden Kings, an Elden Ring discussion. I'm Cosmosis, and with me is co-host Sir Gideon the Half-Knowing. We're here to discuss all things Elden Ring. From software to lore to PvP to the meta builds, we're going to cover everything between the lands between. For our first episode, we will be talking about FromSoft and their origins. How did they start and what journey brought them to what many are considering the game of the year? In 2022, that is no small feat. Uh, let's get into it now. Yeah, no, I, I would love to. Um, so I know that you've been doing some research recently, and uh, I know that you were kind of checking out like where FromSoft started, and I don't know if you want to kind of touch on that a little bit. Yes, so like a lot of early video game companies, From Software actually started as a business application development company and didn't actually release their game, their first game, until eight years after the founding. What do you mean by a business application development company? So honestly, I am not <laughs> I'm not familiar <laughs> just... enough in the software development world to give a clear answer on what they might have developed or exactly the ins and outs of the company itself at that time. But I do know that a lot of um a lot of tech startup companies were still like even back in the eighties, there was a huge tech boom and passionate developers would soon find themselves trying to push the edge in software in the form of video games, giving us early early applications like Mario, like Pong. And... I get what you're saying now, All right. So they were like working on something that, you know, could have been used in the business world. And then they kind of like realized, hey, wait a second, you know, and went and followed like a somewhat more creative endeavor and started creating some video games. Precisely. And that would okay. be, their first game would be Kingsfield, released eight years after the founding in 1994. It was the very first game of the company and would even start the trend of putting the Moonlight Greatsword as an Easter egg in every game. Uh, for those that have played Elden Ring, that is the Greatsword that Ronnie gives you at the end of her quest line. And for those that have played Bloodborne, that is the Greatsword that... Uh... Oh man, and that's really horrible to blank on a name, but we'll just say Horse Guy. We'll <laughs> horse guy. Ludwig the Accursed. I mean, also known as Horse Guy. (laughs) Also known as Horse horse Guy. Any fans out there for Horse Guy? Um, Yeah, no. So, yeah, that that is interesting. Um, Not only with, like, Moonlight Greatsword has that carried through. I mean, like, I I think it's interesting that Patches has uh, stuck through, you know, for, like, at least quite a few of their games. Yes, as far as I know, he was first introduced in Demon's Souls, but he might have been even earlier if I haven't been doing my research properly. He's been Patches, Pate, a spider person in Bloodborne, and he's betrayed you each time. Um, uh, well, uh, yeah, I, yeah, he is a kind of a definitely a sort of nasty character. I mean, a pleasant but nasty character, a little bit of a trickster there. Just while we were on the topic, have you ever gotten the chance to play Kingsfield or take a look at it? I've never had the personal chance. I believe I've watched part of a playthrough online. But that's the extent of it. Have you? Uh, no, yeah. I think I watched some Iron Pineapples uh, playthrough online there. Definitely when it's an interesting video. And I, you know, it, I can see the inspiration and, you know, how we go from that game, you know, back in, what, 94 to now in 2022 with Elden Ring. But it was like a little, a little hard to watch, you know, during those, those, that time. I think it came out a couple years after Doom, which I had played right around then. And I mean, yeah, it was just, it was a different story back then. I was just curious, but yeah. So, I mean, what, after Kingsfield, they kind of got into the armored core series. 
did a couple other things, but I think they kind of like broke out, and especially with with our generation with Demon Souls back in '09. That's kind of I feel like the start of like the the real Soulsborne series. I would agree. Demon Souls not only defines the way that the mechanics in Dark Souls would develop through the iframe type rolling, the combat system, even the concept of hollowing with the early draglings that are shown in the Demon Souls world. It very much defines what would become the Soulsborne series. And I think for that, a lot of its more basic gameplay and story elements can be forgiven since it very much, you know, it, it pioneered the field. The game released as pretty much a cult classic and would sell 1.5 million sales in its first year. Yeah, that's a, I don't know, I would say that's definitely pretty impressive and I'd say a major breakthrough, you know, for a company making games like that, especially at that time. You know, I think if you kind of speed through the rest of the series, which I think we'll get into like more episodes, you know, on each of FromSoft's games. But as of right now, the focus is on Elden Ring. You know, I think DS2 was super hyped. You know, it sells 2.4 copies. Yet, I mean, me personally, and I think others, like, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't what I was hoping for. I don't know about you. We got Dark Souls 2 coming out. And then, you know, Dark Souls 3 comes out and is also super hyped. But it does feel like it got forgotten a little quickly. You know, it sold 3 million copies, so that was decent, but I think the game was a little bit gate-kept by, uh, by its difficulty. Yeah, I think, um, I think Dark Souls 3 definitely lived up to the reputation of keeping the more casual side of gamers away, but after seeing the hype for it, I think that broke down a lot of walls that Elden Ring might have had in terms of its own marketing, allowing it to just ride off of all of the hype of the Soulsborne series with none of the stig stigma of its over overly difficult history, I guess. Although I think it's important to... Did you mention Bloodborne? I have not jumped into Bloodborne yet, and that's one of my favorites. I'm surprised I didn't. Yes, I. Uh, it sold 2 million copies when it first came out. And while it's only a PS4 exclusive, it has a very hardcore following on Reddit. And in the community itself, I have never met more ardent fans of one singular game or its lore. Honestly, as someone that has played Bloodborne like a few times over and read up on its lore, I still don't really understand it, but it's still one of my favorite games. You really can't get over uh, the aesthetic that it has. You know, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible game and especially for its time. What was that? I think it was released in like, what, 2016? I think something like that, yeah. It's an older game now, especially on the PS4, but it seeing it on the PS5, the graphics still hold up very well. The Hunter's Dream is very beautiful. I would agree, and honestly, like something that kind of took me aback a little bit was I felt like Dark Souls 3 was like almost a step back from the graphics that Bloodborne had. You know, we, you had Blood... And I, I'm, you know, I wonder if it's because they incorporated more. There's a lot more mechanics in, in DS3. There's a lot more going on. But, like, I felt like Bloodborne had these certain graphics and, you know, just a, a feel of the world. And I almost feel like Dark Souls 3 took a step down. I mean, that's just me personally. I think that DS3 inherited a lot of uh, visual choice designs from the original Dark Souls in its color palette. And it suffered from not really branching out from that. A lot of the gameplay gives this faded out, almost rust-colored vibe, especially after you link after the eclipse begins on the high wall of Lothric. And really, the only visually distinct area you visit, in my opinion, is Irithyll, which 
while beautiful is frozen over Yarnum, and even then not defining itself in a unique way. I think that's the biggest reason that Dark Souls... Not the biggest reason, that's bold to say, but Dark Souls 3 does suffer from a forgettability complex of not doing anything of its own originally, but still holding up very solidly gameplay-wise. Yeah, no, I would have to agree. I mean, I definitely enjoyed it. I, I had a recent playthrough that uh, right after, I don't know, I, I played Elden Ring enough where I was like, okay, I need to do something else, and I ended up going to Dark Souls 3, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's still held up. I think one of the only ones we haven't really touched on is Sekiro, which I think was kind of, for me, when I was playing it, at the time, I didn't even really realize it was a FromSoft game. It was like such a different play style from everything else they had created. You know, I saw all these similarities. Sekiro comes out and it's like the, the parrying, um, you know, the way the world looked, the storytelling, everything just kind of like blew me out of the water. Honestly, it's my personal favorite. Sekiro is a breath of fresh air for uh, me personally after seeing so much of the medieval Europe fantasy. It gave a new direction with Japanese fantasy. Uh, Wolf as a protagonist is very much a more hardcore protagonist than a lot of the other ones. You know, he's got a like backstory as an orphan child raised by a shinobi, whereas a lot of other people have their, you know, backstory left to the player's discretion. It, it not only plays more story-focused, which to me is more compelling, but it plays more focused in its gameplay as well, where it draws you in into like the absolute bloodshed of playing as Wolf and using all of your shinobi gadgets in the quickest and most efficient way possible, which I think plays into the lore the strongest of any of the other games. I was just going to finish up by saying that while that gameplay really does distinct make it distinct in its uniqueness, it also makes it the, one of the hardest to approach because it doesn't allow for summoning and it leaves it completely on the player's end to adapt and overcome the game's strict laws and difficulty. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And then I guess one of the things that, I mean, with my personal experience, through the Souls games, typically they're a little bit slower. The bosses are a little bit slower. You know, you have more time to kind of figure out, you know, am I attacking, am I rolling, the move sets. Where Sekiro, I, I, I don't even know how to explain it exactly, other than it's like bang, bang, boom, like all the time. And then the other major thing is like, not only is the game really speedy with the parrying and the attacking, where it's like almost like a dance, FromSoft is notorious for difficult bosses. And Sekiro is, in my opinion, boss, 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 boss. Where like the other games, you have these like areas to explore in between, where I feel like every area in Sekiro has a crate, you know, maybe not a crazy difficult boss in it, but I just, I just remember it was like I was like, oh yes, I got him. I'm gonna move to the next area, and then it's like, oh wait, no, there's another boss like right here, and then it's another. For, I mean, for me in my first playthrough, it's another twenty tries right there. Yeah, I understand that completely. It's the game almost forces you to iteratively build on every combat style with each boss acting as an ultimate test of that combat style. No one beats Genichiro without first mastering deflection to at least the extent that he forces you to. And I think that principle holds true in the Guardian Ape fight as well, where it forces you to learn the endurance battle of Sekiro and how to properly avoid 
heavy enemy attacks while measuring that against your own aggression. Because you can't just fight Guardian 8 passively the way, the way the rest of the game goes, because he will not be staggered in that same way. I would love to talk about the Guardian Ape, but it gives me nightmares, and I just want to move on, you know? I, I spent enough hours thinking about that fight, and I will tell you it felt glorious when I beat it, but, if, you know, it just brings me back to what I would say is a, is a time of terror. I just, uh, that to me is probably, me personally, one of the hardest FromSoft bosses that I've, like, ever faced. I definitely got faked out by it getting up after I killed it. I cut off its head, <laughs> put down the controller, and went back to my food, and <laughs> was very shocked to be dead. <laughs> uh, there was a couple of those in that game, and I, I mean, we'll move on to Elden Ring in a second, but yeah, I think, what, like, Lady Butterfly had the, you know, the single death blow marker, Guardian Ape did, there were a couple there, even Lady Butterfly, for me, it was, like, hard enough to get that first death blow, and then it was, like, a moment of glory, not like I threw my controller in happiness, but you know, I jumped up and I'm like, yes, I got her. And then like two seconds later, I'm in a cutscene, and then she has this whole other, even more difficult boss fight. It was just, yeah, same thing with Guardian Ape. Definitely threw me for a loop with that one. Funny that you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, Sakura gets you with that. I think there was less jump scares in it. You know, like compared to some of like the Dark Souls games, you're not, you don't necessarily know, like, I feel like most of the enemies you could, the idea was kind of stealth. You kind of knew where they were and you're doing your thing. Whereas like Dark Souls, like I'm going to roll into this box and then all of a sudden there's a guy there with an ax. Um, yeah. So that, you know, I think that that was their way of keeping that element of surprise. You, you think you're doing something and then it's just not, not what it is. But yeah, so I mean, I guess the biggest question here is like, so how does, how do they go from that to Elden Ring? And I, I don't know if you touched on it before, but I mean, they were expecting like, I don't know, three to four million sales. And it ended up like, I think it's surpassed 13 million at this point. And it's unprecedented. And it's just like the mystique, the hype and the beautiful artistry and the world design is like a huge, huge, huge level up for, uh, for FromSoft. So it's like, you know, how, how does that even happen? I think uh, partly Miyazaki himself has gotten into this in some of the interviews released after the game. But essentially, it draws, it draws a lot from Dark Souls 3's accelerated combat system that it itself was a hybrid of Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne's accelerated combat system. But that mixed with a jump mechanic and the increased mobility that we see in Sekiro is sort of... I think what Elden Ring became, along with that stamp of the open world game that, just let me say, they did so masterfully, you know, drawing from this concept of mini dungeons with uh, traditional dungeons and just an entire landscape of areas to explore. It really kept a mystique and amazing open world, in my opinion. Sekiro as a game, I think, really helped define the story the story pacing that Elden Ring would take, the way that it would have its highs and lows within cutscenes, and how it would be guided by player by NPC dialogue in a new way that the previous games weren't, you know? There wasn't really as much of a precedence in previous games where you would have a character like Melana along with you the entire way that would give you dialogue and context. Uh, you know, that role was previously held by firekeepers that would intentionally be more mysterious and 
you know, distant. Whereas Melina is directly with you and by your side, you know. To go back to a couple of your, your earlier comments about, you know, the, the op like there's a few things that I wanted to mention. I, I had recently been looking into some interviews that were done. And in terms of like, the, you know, you were saying some of it was drawn directly from Sekiro. He uh, was developing Sekiro and Elden Ring at the same time. Like both of those games were like being developed concurrently. And I think some inspiration definitely drew from Sekiro where, yeah, I mean, you, you can definitely see him in Elden Ring. And then the other thing was the open world elements. And I saw in an interview that he was mentioning that, um, you know, he was like, there's not any one game that he drew from, you know, with the open world. But, and I think some people might out, might like hate this comparison, but he had brought up Skyrim and then also surprisingly GTA 4. I don't know where that comes from. I thought that was kind of slightly comical, but I, uh, you know, I can't question where the inspirations come from, but I don't think I personally have been wowed by an open world game with like so many different areas and elements of magic, you know, like I hate when someone's like, oh yeah, like Elden Ring is like the new Skyrim. It's like, no, it's not, but it, it's still like, it's still, it's been a long time since I've been captivated by a game like that. And I think that there are some similarities and it was, it was interesting to hear him say that, you know, some inspiration was taken from both of those games. So I just wanted to touch upon that real quick. I did not know that about the GTA 4 game being an inspiration in some way, but that is actually very funny and interesting to hear about. I really wonder what was going through his head when he thought that. Well, to, to respond to that, I I completely agree. I have actually never played an open world game that really just kept me captivated with my own idea of go anywhere, do anything, and make my own story as Elden Ring. My first playthrough had me, you know, going through following Gideon's advice, pretending I was some knight errant tarnished on my way <laughs> to discover the secrets of the Golden Order and put low these mad demigods. I... It really, I've never had that experience with a game before, and it was very unique. I've never seen yeah. a I've never seen an open world so detailed and made for actual exploration. The closest being Breath of the Wild or like an MMO, I guess. But that's hardly a fair comparison. I think it is a fair comparison because he, I think, also mentioned Breath of the Wild uh, in the interview. And uh, I think another topic that was discussed was um, there was a huge effort in like not letting the player get bored through the whole thing because it's like such a, you know, the game ended up being massively, it ended up being a lot bigger than they had thought it would be. And his whole goal was to like keep people entertained throughout. And, you know, in the same interview, I mean, while we're just kind of touching on subjects about it, he was sharing that his view on the world was like rather dark and that the world like isn't, you know, it, it, it treats us somewhat unfairly. There's harsh conditions. Um, and in those moments of harsh conditions, things with beauty seem so much more beautiful. And that's why you have the air tree surrounded by kind of like all these like dark and not necessarily dark. I don't know how to explain exactly, but you, you know, you, you have these, ah, what is the word that I'm looking for here? You have these demigods that are afflicted all, all of them in some way, in some negative way. And you have these kind of negative areas like Kaelid and you have these dungeons and this dimness. And the whole point is to get to this like brighter, you know, air tree area. And it was interesting to hear him share that in those interviews along with some of the other stuff we were talking about.
Yeah, I think he. Uh, I think he really captures a strong. Oh, oh my! Oh my! Did you just? Did you just hear that? I think we're being invaded. I think we are being invaded. Are we being invaded right now? <laughs> Who could that be? <laughs> Who could that? Watch be? out, guys! Here I am. <laughs> How you guys doing? We're doing good. Uh, I'm gonna maybe. I don't know. Write a gesture to you. Hopefully, you don't cut me down real quick. Who who are you and why are you here? Well, I'm Mike. Call me Garbage Grove. I'm an Elden Ring slash From Software enthusiast, and I'm here to talk about some uh, some hard games with you guys. Nice. Well, welcome to the Roundtable Hold. We appreciate you joining. You know, it's it's good to have you here. I know we've been kind of talking a bunch. You know, from FromSoft's history to kind of where Elden Ring came from. I mean, what are your thoughts while you're here before we cut you down and send you back to where you came from? <laughs> I know I told you guys before, but my first FromSoft game was Dark Souls 3 back in 2017. I didn't think I wanted to play it. I couldn't get past the first level. Eventually, something just clicked and I got it. And then powered my way through the game, beat it again. And then at that point, I still had no idea there was a story in the game. You know, I wasn't familiar yet with From Software's special brand of storytelling. After that, you know, I loved it so much, I kept playing the PvP on it. After that, I went back and I played Dark Souls 2, which I thought was fine back then. I wasn't really aware of the whole controversy behind it. I enjoyed it. It wasn't my favorite. And a little bit after that, I think Dark Souls Remake came out, so I went back and played that. That was probably the first time I got like super engaged with the story as like a whole you know as a trilogy i kind of knew what was going on in dark souls 3 but then i really started to to dive deep into uh from soft's brand of storytelling and i started watching war videos you know vadi video other people on youtube and after that i bought a playstation solely for the the intent of playing bloodborne fell in love with that the lovecraftian themes i really like grim dark so that's what really got me into dark souls in the first place but like I said, the Lovecraftian themes in uh in uh Bloodborne was just just it's like they made it for me, you know. After that I was the first from soft game I was there for on launch was Sekiro. Jumped into that. I thought that was incredible. I liked the changes that they made and I liked the kind of direction they branched off to. They did a lot of bold, kind of risky changes to, you know, the classic Souls formula, but I was definitely on board. And like I said, I loved every minute of that. I love that you couldn't summon anybody. I, ha I loved and hated that you couldn't summon anybody. You had to get good to get through it. And then when uh, PS5 launched, I got Demon Souls Remake, played through that a bunch, and then here we are with Elden Ring. But I think when you go through their games and you, you start from the beginning or you start from any spot, but when you look at them chronologically, you can tell that they've really, you know, they don't make games for anybody. They make them for from software. They make them the way that they want to make them and they don't bow down to any outside influence or, you know, like they draw inspiration and stuff, but they really have their own flavor that they just continue to perfect over time and you can really see it as you play through each one you can see the ones that they kept and the ones that they let go of dark souls 2 you can tell even though i think it was a good game you could still tell it wasn't directed by miyazaki you can see some with some of the differences the adp and soul memory and stuff like that but still they kept a lot of good stuff and then you know they kept some good things because miyazaki and dark souls 3 brought a bunch of lore stuff over from dark souls 2 I don't think any of us could say it better. That's just love for every game at release and at finding even, you know, like there's no need to 
go online and find the games and like you know watch them there's like a new experience that everyone can have and have personally on their own i think especially those first launch experiences i don't know about you guys but every time that a from software game launches with multiplayer i'm always excited to see the new wave of people that get online to talk about it and the new wave of victims to invade you know as an invasion noob i definitely uh i know what you're talking about i was definitely a major victim in ds3 when i hopped in there so uh as as a victim and to other victims out there you'll get through it you'll learn and you'll get better i think that garbage had a very good summation of his like view of the games at the end of it where he said that from software makes video games for no one but themselves and you know it's very true you can really feel that there's an insular building upon their own technique from each iterative game and how it feels and how it's you know taken in after release but they don't overreact i i mean i agree but here's the thing right i feel like the dark souls games were slightly gatekept by their difficulty where the only people like the, the major FromSoft fans were people that like wanted that now you have a game that sold over 13 million copies and i feel like we've seen a few i want to say accommodations the new players that are you know maybe playing these triple a games and they expect something from you know ubisoft and and you know whatever other developers where like i mean just you know off the top of my head they nerfed radon and you know i, I had beaten radon before the nerf and you know i don't have an issue with it per se but i'm like well is this because they have a lot more players then you get the the npc locations on the map you get i mean i think just recently the most recent update is the star curator that you know you get a, like a little marker there so it goes from this like vague storytelling and these difficult bosses where like i you know are they making accommodations because they think that's you know what they should do or are they making accommodations because they realize they now have this much larger fan base and you know they're trying to appease that and keep that there you know you make a really good point i do think that they kind of softened their formula a little bit they did you know with uh with ash summons you know everybody has a mimic tier things like that they definitely did kind of uh soften the blow a little bit but the thing is that i feel like they mixed the, the softness with the hardness a little bit because then again you do have fights like melenia you have fights like horolu champion <laughs> of the badlands yeah that guy well, wait a second. Champion the bad champion of the Badlands or WWE wrestler? Like, I'm a little bit confused by that second phase because I swear to God, this guy is like I don't know. He's throwing Rey Mysterio into the ground. I swear he hopped right out outside of a, a backyard wrestling ring. I, I will say when he ripped his lion off his back and ripped his head off, my first thought was, "Oh shit, here we go." <laughs> You know, that was one of those things where I knew there was going to be a second phase, but I wasn't quite, you know. And then, you know, he runs right at you and then suplexes you, like, immediately afterwards. And it's, and like I said, now I'm I'm pretty deep into new games, and it's, no matter how much vigor you have, it's, like, one-shot kills. Like, no matter, if he lands any move at all, you're getting killed, one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But... But you know what I'm saying? So you do have fights like that still, but then, like you said, there's still accommodations, and, and it's funny you mentioned that too, because as the patches keep rolling out, you keep getting more and more accommodations here and there. I don't think it's anything like too hand-holding, but it, it kind of, in a way, 
doesn't quite dry up the vague, like, you know, mysteriousness of the game, but it does kind of, you know, some of them you could call quality of life changes, you know, because they do. It's funny you mentioned the, uh, the, the crater, because if you listen the game dialogue, they basically tell you, if you're really listening for it, they basically tell you exactly where it's going to be, what changed, and now there's a new area there. But I totally didn't realize that on my first playthrough at all. And it's easy to miss, but now you have the marker on there, so it's like, okay, something's here, better check it out. But it's definitely interesting how they keep rolling out these changes, you know, after the, you know, they went gold, they released the game and all that, but, you know, we're still adding a couple things here and there. It may be telling of when I, my priorities back when the game released, but I had entirely beaten it by the end of that first week, and hadn't gone online at all, so my reaction to online Wait, was... Hold up. That's that's big pimping. You beat it after the first week? Yeah, I had uh took the entire week off of work. I think my first playthrough was around 55 hours and it yeah, it, it, it's it's a bit telling on my priorities. Big pimping. Exactly, big pimping. Um I actually almost got the frenzied flame ending, but Melina talked me out of it and I did not accept the three fingers blessing. If there's three fingers, don't trust them, you know? I, I mean, I don't know, but I just, you know, you can't trust them. <laughs> well, that's good outside from software games, too. In life, you find three fingers. Don't trust them. Don't trust them. You think it's uh, a you, bowling you, you, reference? Um, yeah, you know, I could see that. I think the story behind Elden Ring is definitely how to bowl. I think there's some deep lore there. Very important. Only something Miyazaki would understand. Right, he's the top of his bowling league. <laughs> Radan getting nerfed was just interesting to see because he very much is a demigod that out of the three that introduced the game, Godric, Renala, and Radan, he was the mightiest and is a fallen hero, whereas the other two were never exactly at his level and fell much earlier than he did. He was, you know, the height of the he was at the height of the champion as one of the major contenders for Elden Lord before his duel with Melania, and it was that duel that decided the ending of the Shattering with No Victor. I think that for I think that he was very well thought out as a gameplay block in that idea that people would flee him or really feel the need to have their accommodation by having the champions there to help rather than a weakness in his overall weapon swings damage or health the second you get into that fight you are getting blasted by a great arrow that is you know at first on first playthrough i wouldn't say seemingly impossible seemingly impossible to avoid but it's just like you know all of the other boss fights you hop in and you're like okay this is fine and then it's like what the fuck? Like, how is this happening right now? Like, I'm, like, getting one-shotted the second I enter the boss room. And uh, I, I just, I agree with you there, and I know that we'll get into this more in the lore episode, but the three beginning bosses are kind of, like, on the more, you know, there's some issue that they've downfallen. You've got Godric, who's, like, grafting people. You have Renala, who should have never been in there in the first place. And then you have Radon, who's been inflicted by the rot. I understand that, and they should be, like, you know, they, they show up as a little bit easier even in new game playthroughs. But as you said, Radon was a champion. Radon did everything to get to the point that, like, where he was at. And the fact that he was difficult, I think, was 
it was intentional. It was an intentional, difficult boss fight. I think you touched upon that. And I, I think that I just wonder if it was really like, you know, their intention of saying, oh, this boss is too hard. He's at the beginning of the game, so we should not. Right when you get out of the gates, you have that tree sentinel right there. And you're like, oh, I'm going to like mess with this guy. And you get slammed to the ground. And I think that was the the intent with Verdana. And then I think there was a lot of complaints going around. And then they nerfed him. So like, I have concern. Like, this game, like, it, it, it's a really positive thing that it made so many sales. But also, they have so many more fans now where it's like, it, it's, it's hard to... I think it's a valid concern. But in some ways, reactionary to the very release of the game. Where they were more concerned with the immediate re-feedback that could feed into other people's buying the game, whereas as they approach it from a far later standpoint of having time to assess overall player feedback, they can do their usual iterative building upon what they've learned. For instance, I think that while Radon being nerfed was a big precedent, that was unexpected in the sense that generally they hold true to the gameplay pacing and the difficulty in the sense that it's the difficulty equals the time investment, and that should change per the story and the context of where you are in game, rather than any sort of arbitrarily decided or stat decided uh, difficulty modifier that appears in other RPGs. You know, other updates that they have had haven't nerfed other later bosses that haven't had as much online feedback. And I don't think anyone will ever get as big as Radon, even in future games. We will be right back after these few messages. Feeling underutilized, underappreciated, perfumers say that one-fourth tarnished will lose the guidance of grace by their third year of questing. So rise up, come to the Volcano Manor and join Pride or Reichardt as family. Do you suffer from intense feelings of fear, grief, or anger? Have you ever died before? Via's deathbed clinic may be the place for you. With state-of-the-art corpse cuddling practices and the deep sleep of undeath, you'll never feel alone again. And I just want to give an honorable shout-out to the blacksmith Hugh. First to call us Elden Lord, he's refused to leave the round table whole just like he refuses to leave our hearts. Let's remember him so he doesn't have to. Let's give a special thanks to someone with who this podcast could not have been possible without. Someone who believed in us when no one else did. So come on out, Hugh. Thank you for all your smithing. What? What's that? He He's not here? Senile, you say? Oh, because we burned the hold. All right, back to the podcast. Let's do PvP. I think invading, like if we're flowing off of the idea of community feedback, uh, invading got a huge amount of feedback. Even as far as back as DS3 getting popular, and the idea that invading only happened while doing co-op or while using the buff to your health, it really made it so that casual players that relied on these crutches were overwhelmingly the people that suffered from invasions because they'd be open to it long enough for the matchmaking to bully them. Whereas experienced players that you know, would go through the game unembered or go through the game extremely fast or go through the game without... Uh, even bothering with co-op once you even experience the PvP that, you know, both parties are so interested in. I think in some ways it's like a failing on FromSoft's point to like really make a focused PvP element. But at the same time, from the way that they've released previous games, it seems like they always wait to have any PvP element until the uh, DLC. You know, judging from DS1. Well, they added uh, the arena in Dark Souls 3. 
which I, I really want them to add in Elden Ring as well. I think they absolutely will. Like, they teased us very hard with those Great Jar Arenas, and the Great Jar Arenas even have an in-game, like, layout that's added to them based off of, I think, Zuli the Witch's findings from her data mining. Yeah, they, they gotta do something with those. I mean, there's no... There's no way they, you know what I mean? It seems like everything seems to be intentional, and I feel like they're definitely going to do something with those, especially when they know the popularity that the arena has on, like I said, Dark Souls 3, you know, because people want that, you know, like the unwritten rules, don't heal, blah, 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 but it's, there's nothing really to enforce it, but when you have the arena, it's like, you at least know you're both coming in with the same level of handicap, you know, and I think... You know, there's debates all over the place right now. And like, oh, can you heal in PvP? Can you not? Do you bow first? Do you buff first? How many buffs do you get? You know, but I think a lot of that is solved when you have an arena. You know, one thing that was nice about Dark Souls 3, you have a fight club, so you could go and you watch people fight and then watch people fight again. And then now it's your turn. And then you go back and load up again. Now it's if you want to have a duel, you have to load up and buff yourself and all this stuff for like a 13 second fight. Then you go back to yeah. the screen, this and that. But, I mean, without if you don't have fight clubs, I think really arena, an arena is your best option for, like, a dedicated PvP, equal handicap. You know, everybody has no healing, much less, you know, different levels of, different amounts of flasks and all that stuff, so. Thank you for everything, Garbage. Uh, I've just got one last question. Soldier of Godric, he has been beating my ass for days i can't get past him uh what's the strategy what's your build how do you do it all right we all know soldier of godric is one of the hardest bosses of the game um almost impossible but the number one build i used to be him and the rest of the game is giants flame take thee away and you want to know why just listen to some future episodes we'll be covering things like meta builds lore uh you know like fan art and cosplay I don't know, Gideon. Do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I do. I want to thank everyone for watching today. Thank you for joining us. And our episode two will be released with a guest star. And it will be all about the Elden Ring's comparisons to previous games. How it relates to Soulsborne as a whole and especially Dark Souls. You've been listening to Elden Kings, an Elden Ring discussion. We want to thank you for listening and we want to thank Garbage for being a guest on our first episode. We'll be posting links in the description and keep an eye out for episode two. Until next time.